What does it mean to be a British male of Chinese and Vietnamese descent? In this episode, Daniel shares his journey of becoming a dancer, actor, and creator of arts. His story is about finding pride and joy in expressing his identity in different spaces. I'm Fumi, this is Hashtag R Racism, and this is the story of Daniel. So my name is Daniel Fung. I am a British-born East and Southeast Asian, specifically Chinese and Vietnamese. I am a dancer. I'm an actor. I'm an artiste. <laughs> I'm a person who loves to create as much as possible, simply because I can't sit still. I think that's my biggest problem. And my biggest defense mechanism is I like to make jokes. Um, so I was born in London. And I moved over to Sheffield when I was seven. And the thing about London is that it's so multicultural that it's just a boiling pot of different ethnicities and cultures come together. So naturally, like I grew up with a Congolese friend and an Arab friend, and that was very normal. And then I moved to Sheffield, where it's predominantly British white. And one of the first weeks I, I remember immediately feeling like the other person, you know, and I wasn't necessarily like outright racism. It was more so someone making me feel different and it being not okay. Yeah, you know how like you have those equal opportunities forms and you, you tick the other box because you don't have your category. Like mine would be Vietnamese and I, I can't, I have to tick other because it's not there. It almost feels like that in a sense that I'm on the outside looking in and I, this is a exclusive club that I've not been invited to yeah so i experienced that like at seven or eight years old again that wasn't like an outright racism thing it was more so i'm different and then yeah throughout school and secondary school or high school to others i've experienced certain things like yeah like the obvious where you from oh uh can you tell me something in chinese with vietnam where's that oh so your parents were in you know whatever they have happened quite a lot <laughs> during my teenage years. And I think for me, because of those experiences, I maybe it's a very Asian thing, but I don't like to generalize too much. But like my parents told me to assimilate, but also look after yourself because there might be a time where I might have to fight, you know, protect yourself as much as possible. And so I had to. But because of that, I, I, I'm not a fighter. Like I am so weak. It's... <laughs> Unreal. Um, but like my thing is for me is because I wanted to assimilate so much, I really focused on trying to fit in to the crowd, I guess, to my uh, white counterparts, my white friends. And that was very important to me. And so, like I said before, I like to make jokes to icebreak the relationships I have with people. And if they don't laugh, laugh at my first joke, I'm like, OK, this is going to be quite hard for me to become friends with you but you know that's just one of my things I need to that I learned as a kid actually and I'm just going to fast forward a little bit because there was a moment that I've spoken to I spoke to my friend about this uh, not too long ago about how I I was like one of very very few East Asians in the school right I think I was like one of three at the time in my year I was like the only one but there was this mainland Chinese girl that came during sixth form, which is like 16 to 18 years old. 
And she came over, she was like very Chinese, extremely Chinese, whatever that means. And at my school, we're quite artistic. There's this whole festival of like different cultures and stuff. And so the black community would do their thing, Asian community would do their thing, and East Asians would do our thing. And me being a person who was so focused on assimilating was very worried about what would happen. And so mainline Chinese girl comes along and performs a Chinese dance. And me being an absolute, oh, I feel, I'm quite embarrassed because it's quite, it's quite sad actually. But like, I essentially said she was performing this amazing Chinese dance. I don't even know what it's called, but she was doing it. And the thing is, it was very impressive. However, I said to my friend, it's like, oh God, she's so embarrassing. And as soon as I said it, I knew that I shouldn't have said that. However, I still said it because I was waiting for my friend's reaction. And that was a very interesting moment for me because that was the moment where I realized, oh, I depend on other people's approval of my own existence. Like I've been minimizing my identity for the longest time. Even today, there, there were times when I have to minimize myself. And it felt like at that moment, I was, it felt like because she was performing a Chinese dance that was impressive and people were impressed, I was just not impressed. Well, I was, but I was too embarrassed to be impressed because it felt like by her performing, I became a human target or to be ridiculed, if that makes any sense. The thing is, my friend enjoyed it. And he, I, I vaguely remember him, him saying, I was so inside insular, but I remember vaguely remember him saying, like, you shouldn't say that or whatever it was. And just me being so conflicted of like what to believe, you know? And this was like 16, 17 years old, quite influential years, I would say, impactful years for sure. The reason I brought that up that conversation is because I did a project recently where it was to talk about Vietnamese heritage but more specifically, our heritage, who I was performing with. And so we were three British Vietnamese artists. One was a poet, one was a digital artist, and myself, who's a movement artist. And we spoke about our kind of upbringing, whatever. And the thing about Vietnamese heritage is it's revolved around trauma, it being controlled by America or China or France or, you know, whatever. And so Vietnam post-American war didn't really have much of an independency. So yeah, like my parents are refugees, for example. And so the whole show is about navigating our story, but being so influenced by our parents' journey because of where they've come from, what they've been through, their struggle. But also the, the big question mark of what they've been through, because actually that's a conversation that is quite traumatic, is quite problematic for a lot of people. And so it's not really spoken of in a way because maybe it's too much for people to talk about, you know? And so this whole show was, rather than making it about, this is what our parents went through, this is actually what we've been through as British-born Vietnamese artists and what that means. Being from an Eastern or Southeast Asian household, but in a predominantly white country, because that is a whole thing to talk about being a third culture kid, being torn between the two cultures. Because I personally, I only speak Cantonese, I don't speak Vietnamese, but also like it's very basic Cantonese. So it almost feels like in East Asia, I'm kind of too white, but in UK, I'm too Asian. And so there's this third culture of, you know, where people like myself, where we can kind of like connect together 
as a third culture kid. And I think that's so important for me. Daniel shares how his journey to dancing and making creative work began and evolved over time. I started when I was around 12. I was fairly overweight and I have an older brother. I wasn't overweight. I was just a bit chubby. I ha- I, my parents owned a Chinese restaurant, like a Vietnamese restaurant. So like, what can I, you know? <laughs> um, anyway, my mom and my brother made a plan of getting me to dance class. My brother was training at the time, or he still is training. And I did it and I hated it because I was bad at it. And also I kind of resented my family for making me do this. Because all I wanted to do was just play like Final Fantasy on my PlayStation. That's all I wanted to play, you know? And then <laughs> it's kind of bad, but I realized that, oh, I'm attracted to girls now. Oh, girls like dancers. Oh, it's cool to dance. So then I took it seriously. Then I started to get good. Oh, I have a girlfriend now. <laughs> this is so bad. Um, but no, no, in reality, I, I um, yeah, I did start because I, it was cool. It was a cool thing to do. But then um, I also got like, I had a really good teacher, two teachers. Nathan Gearing, who was my breakdance teacher, he basically was like, keep going, basically, keep going. You're, you're getting good at this. You can see the improvement. And, you know, this was in a very community center where it was like predominantly ethnic minorities. Like there was Blacks, Asians, there were also whites, you know, and people from all over, people from France as well, which is cool. But I was a community center. So I, then I did it in school where I had this teacher called Miss Lee or Moira Lee and she she actually didn't teach us any dance however she taught us how to be inspired by dance and she basically said to my mum like Daniel could pursue a career in dance if he wanted and Asian parents do Asian parent things and yeah so that happened and then I in the end I decided I'm going to be a dancer and so I took contemporary classes I did what I could to try and get into whatever schools. I didn't get into the schools I wanted, so I went to university, which for like, like you have conservators, which are like regarded as very high class, and then you have universities that are regarded as just like, you get it just for the degree, which to be fair was what I was trying to do for my parents to get a degree. And then I learned a lot on my uni course. Uni course was so good at Leeds, at the time Leeds Metropolitan, studied contemporary dance. And the whole time I was so inspired by like what dance could be and how it could be presented in theatre, on outside, on buildings, inside a room, you know, all different locations and disciplines and whatever. And I basically decided to kind of combine my hip hopness with my contemporaryness and do this. Okay, I have two hands right now. I'm in my left hand I have hip hop. In my right hand I have contemporary and I'm clenching my hands together. And that essentially is like my thing. I love this hybrid form of dance, of contemporary and hip hop, right? And because of this, naturally, people who are on either side of those, who are, I guess, in quote unquote, purists, would find that problematic. It's like, that's not hip hop, that's not real hip hop, that's not contemporary, that's hip hop. And it's just this, again, that kind of reflects on my, my me as a human being, right? I, I'm so interested in blurring the boundaries, breaking those conventions and you know, all of those things. That's just been me. And so, yeah, in the theatre world, it's it's changing a lot now, which I'm so thankful for because people like me can exist now. But prior to this, it was very much like 
controlled by, understandably, by the way, by white people. But it was also seen, like art was seen through a white lens, a white perspective. And I think with that, if you're a person of ethnic minority and you're trying to make work, you are kind of expected to bring up all your traumas. Like, I should receive this funding because I'm a person of colour that has experienced so much problems. And I'm only restricted to those problems now. Whereas I cannot make work revolved around, let's say, I don't know, sitting on his floor, being interviewed by you, you know, like anything random, whatever it is. And so it's, it's, yeah, it's a weird system that we have in the UK that we, we have to tick these certain boxes for us to receive funding. And yeah, and it's, it's gotten to the point where in like auditions, as when I was just dancing, that if there was another Asian male in the group, or even Asian in general, I naturally would be against that person, simply because if they were to hire both of us, it would immediately be a piece about being Asian, or it would be a piece about Asian struggles, or whatever. And quite clearly, that's problematic, because that then means that we're against each other, you know? which is kind of odd. And, you know, if you it were to flip it on to, like, the majority side or the, the white side, God, that sounds so bad, but uh, of white people, but a white female and another white female would not be compared against each other. They, they, of course, would in different senses, but when, it, when we're talking about ethnicities and getting a job, two white females would get hired on a job, 100%, but two Asian males would not. This was my experience when I was auditioning. I don't audition anymore in, in the dance world, but that was the case. You know, that's... I figured that out quite, not actually quickly, but I thought for a while that it was, you know, fairly equal because we're artists, but I realized maybe halfway through my dance career that actually it's not the case because that's when I started to make work. You know, people were asking me to make Chinese work, make Vietnamese work. And I got very confused by that because I am Chinese Vietnamese. But what do you mean by me making that work? What are you expecting? So then for a long, there was a period of time where I, I didn't label myself as a British East or Southeast Asian artist because I realized that people were expecting me to do, I don't know, martial arts or whatever. Something stupid, right? What were they expecting? You know? And so, yeah, during that time, I decided not to label myself as that. And that did me okay i you know i i may still made work uh the thing is i made work about like trauma and stuff wow that sounds dramatic but it really wasn't as dramatic as it sounds but derived from that but then i got connected to the vietnamese artistic community which by the way i never thought existed because my vietnamese side of my family were very much against anything artistic because it didn't make money you know they were quite traditional you know my my whole family have been part of the Vietnamese army type thing, you know, like they were very headstrong. And yeah, so I connected to this Vietnamese community and they all basically said like, you are Chinese Vietnamese, you are British born, you are those things. There's no running away from that. And it's very much like, look, you can label yourself as whatever, but in reality, you don't have to make what people expect you to make. You can make whatever you want to make. And I didn't realize that. The thing is, people have said that to me 
so much, but it only made sense when people who I closely identified with said it to me. And I think it's like, it just made so much more sense. My, 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 my good friend, Tuwe Van Huyen, who's London based, she's a producer director. She basically was like, you are the music. Like you make work that's good. And it's not like Vietnamese culture, but you're Vietnamese and you make Vietnamese work. That's just you. And it just clicked, the coin just dropped. And I was like, oh yeah, why haven't I been doing this already? You know? And there's so much to unpack there about like fitting in and wanting to be um, accepted by the gatekeepers of the art world, whatever. Daniel shares his take on where to draw the line between cultural appropriation and appreciation. Like I said before, I'm a dancer. And so I come from a predominantly working class background. And with that, I grew up around hip hop and I started in hip hop dance, like breaking specifically. And with that, like b-boys and b-girls are so strong on where it came from especially like when i started anyway and there were always these few people that would say keep it real this is where hip-hop came from never forget that and purists i guess and one thing i learned from hearing about the foundations or the pillars of hip-hop is that it's all about spreading love and positivity that's probably the most important thing and i think when it comes to cultural appreciation it's about learning where it came from uh, learning what it means obviously things are going to get confused over time because we we as humans are very bad at communicating however i think it's important to know the culture behind something behind okay if i'm wearing i guess hip-hop clothing it's like that's just what we used to wear for battles you know that was the thing but i think it becomes a problem when people are wearing it, but wearing it as like a form of mockery, you know, because you can wear it, you can wear it and not know where it comes from and still feel beautiful or handsome or whatever. But I, if it's a form of like, I'm doing it because, hmm, I may backtrack on this. I'm, I'm, I'm unsure. This is a big question mark. And I think you may feel the same, but I guess it's more of a question. Is it appropriation? Because it's appropriate. The word appropriation is subjective, right? Not everyone has the same level of tolerance when it comes to cultural appropriation. And so for me, I guess I can only speak on my behalf. I'm thinking out loud. Okay, this is what I'm going with. I feel like if you are doing something that is of, say, black culture, because hip hop came from black people, but you're doing it, if you're doing it really well, if you're re- doing it like specifically dance, if you're doing it really well and people are loving it, I feel like you can't tell the person you're appropriating their culture, whatever, because you're, you, you've done the research, you've gone through a long time of training to be at this level. Whereas this is where it can get appropriated. If you do one class and decide, oh, I'm going to teach the world that this one class that I did, oh yeah, I'm a professional now this is where it becomes a problem because you're a you're this very much appropriation that's very much so and um i can go into the whole dance politics but it's a whole thing and i won't do that because it'll be another conversation actually you know it's about racism it's the thing okay so you think of ballet it's high art you think of breakdancing it's working class art you would never get a person who learns ballet one time and say they're a professional ballerina or do one class and just teach the world. 
However, for some reason, there's this thing of you would learn breaking one class and then you would teach the world this one class that you've done and say that you, you're, a, you're a b-boy now. And, you know, ballet is mostly, uh, it comes from white art or high art or whatever. And this is where I feel like there's a thing. Daniel recently started acting. He shares his journey towards acting. The reason I chose dance is because I was very afraid to speak words. I was very afraid to show myself. You know how I was saying earlier, I was very good at minimizing myself. The only time I couldn't minimize, I, I didn't minimize myself was when I was performing. But because I was bad with words, I can only move. And dance was the thing I could do. So I, I just danced. That's all I did. That's all I did because I would love to perform. I love to embody a character that wasn't myself because I did battling. Like I did, I comp- competed a bit, wasn't very good at it. And I realized it's because I just wanted to perform. Performance was my thing. And yeah, so never really good with words. And then I think just three years ago, I decided I'm good at talking now. I know what I'm talking about. I know I like the sound of my own voice. <laughs> I don't, but I like talking a lot. And I think at that stage, I was ready to, I was emotionally ready. I was, um, my confidence was at a good place where I felt like I can speak and perform and that's okay. And I'm not as worried about being ridiculed. Of course, there's techniques and whatever, but at the core of it, I know that I can do it because I think that was a big barrier as a kid. I, I wasn't able to, perform you know like I remember I, I actually took uh, theatre studies which is like an acting class for my uh, GCSEs when I was like 14 to 16 and I remember doing the first class and they asked me to do an exercise where I'm pretending to be at a bus stop and waiting for a bus and I remember my heart racing the whole time like didn't say anything this was pure movement but there was no script or anything but the fact that I felt like I was in an acting class like I held it to such a high pedestal. And then I felt like I was doing bad. I felt like no one was liking it. I felt like nothing. And then the following day, I quit. I decided I'm not going to do that. I quit. And I was like, I'm just going to keep dancing because dancing, I enjoy dancing. So then, yeah, like now is I have, I can do that bus stop scene if you want me to, you know. <laughs> and I, I, the thing is, I owe it to Crazy Rich Asians too. I owe it to this show. My Neighbour Totoro. Very good, by the way, in London, Barbican. Yeah, so shows like that, shows like Crazy Rich Asians, shows that I saw people who I identified with were on TV and film. I was like, I'm like, yes, okay, if they can do it, I can do it. The doors have been opened for me, you know, because for the longest time they were closed. And so I decided, yeah, I want to act. And I, I, I did a bit of training and I was like, okay, maybe I'm actually quite good at this now. Got an agent. And then here we are. I'm currently in Romeo and Juliet, which is fun. And I've done Rain Dogs, which is a TV series on BBC and HBO. And I want to do more, you know. I want to do more. Daniel reflects about representation within pop culture. Mainstream media is always reflective of the society that we live in. So what I mean by that, in... India, they have Bollywood. They will cast Indian actors and make Indian style movies. 
because they have Bollywood. Their audience is of Indian descent. America is very multicultural, and I think America is a very specific place. But representation for me is is like you either get it or you don't, and it's tricky because you have movies like like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I fucking love Marvel. However, some of their movies have been such tick boxy, and it feels like you're doing it for the sake of doing it, and it feels a bit awkward when you're doing it. Whereas you get movies like Everything Everywhere All at Once, where it's like perfect, like so good. And talking about Everything Everywhere All at Once, that movie was so great because it was telling a story that was relatable to everybody, and the family just happened to be Chinese. They happened to be Chinese. They didn't have to be Chinese. They just were, and they were telling a story that was not to do with their ethnicity. Yeah, they spoke in Chinese, but it wasn't to do with their ethnicity. It was about this multi-dimensional universe, and it was amazing. It was so good. It's one of my favorite movies. But I feel I feel like the reason why tick、uh, boxy films are happening at the moment is because we're at we're at a stage in our lives where people are demanding change. People are demanding that they see themselves on TV and whatever. And if I'm honest, I think it's great. How it happens is down to you know the producers of the companies, that the production companies and writers and whatever they they have a responsibility to write good work that represents communities that I guess need to be seen. But in a, I guess this is the whole cultural appropriation appreciation thing. You know where where is the line for some people? And so these decisions are being made, and yeah, I'm. I don't really have a constructive opinion on it. However, I do feel like it is happening, and thankfully, I'm benefiting from it because I'm a performer, and I, I I'm interested to see what else happens, because I, I am noticing that certain Asian roles are being made, but I almost feel like it's a certain type of typecast. That's happening, like a lot of casting calls nowadays are looking for like what I I felt anyway are looking for like K-pop type people, and I'm not that you know, and so that that's very interesting because it's K-pop is massive, it's so big, and it's I feel like what K-pop's doing at the moment is bigger than than what Crazy Rich Asians did to the Asian community, like in terms of popularity, because it's just wild how big it is. Daniel shares how emerging actors can navigate this field. I was speaking to casting directors about this.、Um, as an actor, we have agency to say yes or no to these jobs. But as a as an actor who maybe hasn't got any credits or whatever, I think it's probably good that we do say yes to those jobs because it gives us credits. It gives us credentials to say we've done the job. We can do the job. Yes, it was under this specific type of role, but we still did it. And fr- this is from a, like an actor's growth career standpoint. It's important that we say yes to these jobs because we can prove ourselves that we can do the jobs. Then, however many years or how many times you wanna, you've done the specific typecast, you can then say no, and that's okay, you know. But the, at least you've proved to the world that you can do that job. But I mean, writers and producers—they have their role in this conversation, right? Against the background of his experiences, Daniel has the following to say on what it takes to be anti-racist. What does it take to be 
anti-racist in my opinion it's being aware of your own life and regardless of your ethnicity your color or gender or sexuality whatever any otherness be aware of those be, be aware of who you are and be aware of how society perceives who you are versus other people just be aware of those things and i don't know i feel like because of that i've been able to understand people's experiences as let's say a woman what that means you know uh, yeah I, and i think I, I haven't been specific to being anti-racist but being anti-anything or anti, anti oh god brain fart you know what i mean but to be that to be better i guess is is to be aware of your own perspective of yourself and see how what your presence and how much your presence takes space you know how, how like you know how i was talking about minimizing myself one of the reasons why i minimize myself is because i didn't want to be seen whereas now it's like i'm aware of if i maximize myself that minimizes other people's space and so there's this balance between taking space and giving space and, and i think that's okay um that was such a um, artistic response. I, di I didn't mean for it to be so like that, but it did. It happened. And we, we move. We move. You can find more information about typecasting, as well as other articles, books, and videos Daniel recommends people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and hashtag our racism. See you next month on January 1st. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Music by Pete Morse, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. This podcast is powered by the Competence Center for Diversity and Inclusion at the University of St. Gallen. A warm thank you to Daniel for his time and energy in going down memory lane for us and sharing with us invaluable and timely reflections on this issue.